Hello and welcome to the Science AAAS webinar. This is the sixth part of our series addressing important, timely, and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. Today's webinar is entitled Impulses, Intent, and the Science of Evil, a topic we hope you'll find engaging but not too disturbing. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'm looking forward to moderating today's discussion. Finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now, I'm excited to introduce our studio panel to you. Uh, just to my left, we have Dr. Abigail Marsh from Georgetown University in Washington, DC. Abby is professor of psychology, neuroscience, and cognitive science, and author of the book, The Fear Factor, how one emotion connects altruists, psychopaths, and everyone in between. Next, we have Dr. Michael Stone, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University in New York, specializing in personality disorders. He is author of a number of books, including The Anatomy of Evil, and more recently, The New Evil, Understanding the Emergence of Modern Violent Crime. Finally, we have Dr. Gary Brocado, also from Columbia University, where he is Associate Research Scientist in the Department of Psychiatry, working on, amongst other things, assessing potential violence risk and developing novel screening measures for aggression. He also happens to be the co-author of The New Evil, together with Michael. A warm welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for being in the studio. Uh, as usual, I'm going to have you each introduce yourselves, uh, say a little bit about yourself and uh, what brings you to today's webinar. So, Abby, let's start with you. I'm a psychologist and neuroscientist at Georgetown University, and I conduct research with children who have psychopathic personality traits. So these are children who are unusually callous and remorseless and uncaring, and they often engage in antisocial and sometimes violent behavior. And I conduct brain imaging research to try to understand better what makes their uh, brains and their behavior so different from other children. Great. Michael? Uh, I'm <coughs> Michael Stone, uh, professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia. I uh, got uh, interested in borderline personality because of the unit that I've worked on for many years where there were patients uh, who hurt themselves and did other things that gave them that diagnosis. But as a result, uh, many attorneys would get hold of me to uh, be expert witness in cases of that sort. And then I got to be uh, interested in the extremes of personality because of my uh, interest began to shift over into forensics. And so I began to be interested not only in the more ordinary personality disorders, but also in the extreme ones, antisocial personality, sadism, and psychopathy, which of course overlaps a lot with our discussion today of evil. Wonderful. Gary. Uh, I'm Gary Bricado. I'm a clinical psychologist at uh, Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. I'm an associate research scientist there. Uh, and I'm the assistant director of a research clinic that's called the Center of Prevention and Evaluation, or COPE. Um, the research and clinical work we do there uh, is with young people, uh, young adults uh, who are experiencing early psychotic symptoms. It might suggest um, future progression into things like schizophrenia, psychotic mood disturbances. Uh, and uh, we're increasingly um, looking at how this may overlap with risk for violence. <coughs> Uh, and um, it was that work that got me interested in looking at all of the factors that have nothing to do with mental illness, uh, severe uh, psychotic illness, mood disorder, so forth, like personality features, certain life events or other characteristics that may drive serious violence, and that led to my work with Michael Stone uh, and um, the writing of The New Evil together. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Great. Thank you all for that. Um, so 
I thought we'd get started um, at a, a sort of higher level, uh, maybe a bit of philosophical level, and talk about how do we define evil. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in the difference between an evil person and an evil act. Um, so are there evil people or are there only evil acts? So maybe, Michael, we can have you start us off. Yeah. Well, evil was originally a concept more talked about by uh, people of religion and uh, philosophers. Uh, it tended to be the opposite of the good, so that there were um, the idea of good and bad or good and evil. Uh, the people in uh, Persia, the, among the Zoroastrians, talked about the good god of Hura Mazda, the god of light, and Ahriman, the god of darkness or black, so that black, white, th these were some of the original concepts. Um, <coughs> and then uh, in the, the, the various religions, the idea of good versus bad uh, was often sometimes spoken about good versus evil. And the word in some of the languages, like the Romance languages, mal, uh, is the word for uh, good, um, for bad and evil. Mm -hmm. They don't make much of a distinction. Whereas the word, our word evil, really is a reflection of the German word übel, which means beyond, over, so that what we call evil now in uh, everyday speech is something that goes beyond, it's not only bad, but it goes beyond the usual bad, mm -hmm. and is something uh, uh, terrific, uh, heinous, atrocious, uh, and so on. So, so that when people in everyday life, including also uh, people you know, who are in more expert positions like uh, judges and, and prosecutors and so on, when they use the word evil, they and also we in, in everyday speech are talking about the things that are not only bad, but heinous, atrocious, uh, that elicit for what me, for, for <coughs> in my opinion, is an, an emotional word. It's a word that we use when we hear about something just dreadful, like someone killing and dismembering a child or something of that sort, and we're shocked and we, we have our, our uh, certain facial expression and we say, oh my God, that was evil. Mm -hmm. So that the everyday use of, of the word evil refers to heinous, atrocious acts uh, which go well beyond the ordinary awful things that happen in, in everyday life that you read in about minor crimes in the newspaper. Uh, so that uh, evil, therefore, uh, is a special subset of all the bad things. It's, it's not only bad, it's, it's especially awful, mm -hmm. incomprehensibly bad. Mm -hmm. Abby? I, I like your emphasis on evil actions because as somebody who studies children and adolescents, I, I, and frankly if you study adults as well, I don't think it's ever appropriate to refer to a, a person as evil. Um, actions are certainly evil and some people are highly predisposed to keep committing evil actions, but evil does have this very supernatural connotation um, and like so many uh, supernatural ideas, I think the concept of evil is pulled in whenever we have trouble understanding mm -hmm. why somebody would do such a thing, right? It, there, we, we talk about evil spirits or evil forces because it's so difficult to understand um, for most people why anybody would be driven to do something that would cause other people pain and suffering for no reason. Mm -hmm. um, but there is an explanation. We may not know what it is yet, but there is an explanation for these behaviors. And so, uh, but the use of the word evil doesn't get us any closer to understanding that. It's, it leaves us in this supernatural rut, rather than thinking of these behaviors as things that do have, unfortunately, human motivations, um, mm -hmm. but that are not the totality of the person. And evil is a very essentialist term as well. It, it, mm -hmm. it assumes this sort of uh, homogeneity within the person, which right. is not usually true. Right. And Gary, I, I know that in, in your and Michael's book, you talk about um, uh, the fact that, that you've, you've seldom met people who are 
you would call truly evil in at all times. So there is certainly the concept that people are evil some of the time, or so-called evil, when right. they're committing evil acts. Well, w once we you know have have laid the groundwork for the conversation in, in emphasizing that what we're talking about are actions as opposed to. Um, People that are engaged, you know, where a person is evil, or or that there is a supernatural force that is involved in evil, where we're really just adopting a word from the common parlance uh, for these kinds of acts. Then what, what we have to clarify is that rarely, even in the most egregious repeat offenders, do you see somebody that, from you know dusk till dawn, is committing acts that would be considered evil. As a matter of fact. Um, uh, you know, most of the, for example, people who engage in serious sexual homicides, serial killers, so forth. Even these individuals commit repeat horrendous acts um, that might be called evil commonly. Um, often have double lives, where they're, you know, fathers or or are considered uh, beloved co-workers or or so forth. And then in private, have this sort of split off uh, uh, component of their lives where they're committing these these actions. Mm -hmm. um, Michael? Well, there's therefore a very, very small number of people who, uh, as Dr. Bricado was mentioning, who do evil things as it were from the minute they wake up in the morning until they go to sleep at night. Uh, I, the one that comes closest to mind is the one that I interviewed for the Discovery Channel program some years ago, and that was uh, David Paul Brown, his real name, who then changed his name when he was in prison the first time uh, to Benjamin Nathaniel Barjona. Uh, who was a gay uh, pedophile who uh, would seduce uh, uh, boys coming out of a theater and then try to uh, capture them and if he could uh, kill them and so on. Some of them escaped uh, and managed you know, to uh, uh, identify him and then he was spent some years in prison in the Massachusetts area before he was then uh, let released by a uh, a judge who listened to a psychiatrist who said, well, he seems to be better now, even though he really wasn't. Mm. The minute he got out, he uh, tried to attack another boy. Uh, he, he weighed about almost 400 pounds, and he was in a, imagine a, um, like a parking lot where there's a, a shopping mall. He got into the car and sat on a, a boy, a little boy of seven or, or eight, and was crushing him and so on. The, the mother came out and, and was horrified and, and he, okay. Uh, and she was going to call the police, but the mother came, the mother of, of <laughs> Barjona still uh, loved her son and stuck up for him and said, I, I'll promise you my, uh, my boy, he was never going to do that. He's going to go to live with his brother in Montana. Okay, so out in Montana, he then dressed as a policeman with a fake badge and would seduce little boys, like uh, 10 years old or whatever, coming out of a school and drag them, taser them and drag them to his apartment where he would torture them prolongedly, uh, kill them, eat part of the boy, and what he didn't eat, he would serve to the people living next door as though it were deer meat. Mm. Uh, and that was something, and he had thousands of pictures of, of boys and, and uh, on the walls and, and making up uh, very bad uh, comments and puns as if uh, um, some young kid was if that was a Chinese uh, menu uh, item uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a menu, some young kid. Uh, so that he could be counted on, one of the few people that I, I know of, who was evil day in and day out. That's very rare. Mm -hmm. There was another fellow, Leonard Fraser in Australia, that also had that quality of 
being evil all the time, but they're rare, and others like uh, Dr. Ricardo was mentioning uh, have a wife to whom they're very pleasant and nice, but then because of the split in their personality, the, they mm -hmm. vary, they swing back and forth between being socially agreeable and being wicked. Mm -hmm. So, I'm, you know, just as you discuss this, I feel, you know, this... this Repulsed. Yeah, this <laughs> disgust and, and, you know, repulsion uh, thinking about this. And, and so I, I'm assuming that this is what drives people to label someone as evil. Um, and I wonder if, if that label is useful. You know, if we look at maybe the, the children that, that you, Abby, are, are, are re uh, doing your research with, um, if you see these inclinations, is it helpful to put labels on them? And where, where does that get us, you know, scientifically and, and in terms of treatment? I don't think it gets us anywhere. It's one mm -hmm. of the many reasons I wouldn't uh, ever refer to that term, uh, to call a human being evil. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the children I work with didn't make a choice to, to have the personalities they do uh, uh, or to have the life experiences that have led them to the place that they are. Um, and instead, we know that psychopathy, again, this condition of having uh, very low levels of remorse and care and compassion for other people, has all the hallmarks of a mental illness. It has a strong heritability mm -hmm. uh, component. Uh, it, having negative life experiences causes uh, prognosis to get worse. There are uh, very clear characteristic brain and cognitive changes. It looks like any other psychological mm -hmm. disorder in those key ways. And so calling people who are affected by this condition evil is not helping us to develop treatments to mm -hmm. try to improve their prognosis and try to improve the odds that they won't go on to do things that affect the rest of us negatively. Um, because I think what it does is calling somebody evil robs us of the ability to view them compassionately. Mm -hmm. um, when in fact people who are affected by these conditions, again, nobody, how many of us make a choice to be the kind of person that we are, um, especially when we're children. Right. And so uh, it's to me much more useful to think about it from a public health perspective, just the way we think mm -hmm. of substance use disorders now. Mm -hmm. So let me let me um, just sort of go move on from that to a discussion of the death penalty um, that recently the federal government is wanting to reinstitute the death penalty. Um, so a question from one of our, our viewers is um, there's there's several examples of failures when society has put a person to death using death penalty, but also when we talk about people like this who we feel are so far into that. Um, that place where they, you can't bring them back, they prob probably are not treatable. Um, should we have the death penalty? And this, the second part of the question is, should um, foundations like the NIH be funding research into this sort of thing, um, into psychopathy and also into whether the death penalty is a good punishment? So Gary, I don't know, maybe we can come to you and then Michael if you have any thoughts on that. Well, it's a, it's a complicated question because this is one of those places where it's very difficult to divorce evil as we mean it from evil as it was originally meant, which is where you were talking about a moral question. And so what's difficult is that uh, when an individual is faced with an offender who has done something that is considered egregious, not only uh, as a moral act, and not as one reflecting a biological condition, then the idea is you have done something so horrendous that you deserve a punishment in retribution for that, for, for that action. And so I think where there's a little bit of a slippery slope uh, in, in our discussion is, is that if we are going to put an emphasis on the biological underpinnings uh, for uh, acts of extreme aggression that we would call evil, 
um, then it, it sort of almost seems like we're trying to um, suggest an excuse uh, for mm -hmm. such behaviors that an individual um, had no idea what he or she was doing and was acting out of an animalistic, you know, pure biological perspective. And that's where I think, it, you know, we, we should, we have to sort of talk a little bit about um, justice for moral um, offenses mm -hmm. and how that ties into this. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael? Well, I'm interested in <coughs> the um, habit during the Plantagenet dynasty in, in England between uh, Henry II and Richard III uh, in the 12th, 13th, 14th, uh, 15th century, when if you committed treason, you were drawn, hanged, and quartered. It's a very uh, terrible punishment mm -hmm. um, where you were dragged on a sled, put on a gallows, and at first, not the rope was put around your neck, but you were not fully hanged. The executioner cut your belly open throughout the intestines and whatnot, and then eventually uh, cut out the heart, at which point you were finally dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and then your body was cut in, in four pieces, drawn and quartered, uh, and, and sent to different cities. It was a warning, if you commit treason, this is what's going to happen to you mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. as a deterrent. Right. So the death penalty uh, was, in effect, used as a deterrent, a warning that certain acts are so unacceptable mm. that you will uh, pay uh, with your with your life uh, if you commit them. Mm -hmm. So the death penalty now the death penalty is uh, arg one argues back and forth. Does it serve as a deterrent or does it not? Uh, mm. There's arguments on both sides. Probably not much of a deterrent because the kind of person who does the most horrendous evil acts, mm -hmm. uh, the psychopath, you know, with uh, a sadistic mm. uh, uh, attribute, uh, who does uh, atrocious things to others is probably not going to be deterred by right. the idea that he may die. Uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, uh, I think the the, uh, the general population uh, feels satisfied when somebody who does heinous and atrocious things uh, beats the death penalty and is executed, because uh, it gives a, a sense that uh, of recognition of the awfulness and that the person pays with the condign punishment. Mm -hmm. So that I think there's an argument for the death penalty in those extremely unusual, horrible cases, mm -hmm. uh, even though I know that people of a very religious bent uh, tend to uh, oftentimes oppose it. But lately, because don't forget, in, in the same religious people some decades and, and centuries ago were very much for it. That's so that right. it's not as if that the religion itself is the way the uh, general temper of the, the times changes over the decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Abby? Yeah, I think it's a really important point to make that the uh, death penalty does not work as an effective deterrent. I mean, we know statistically it's a very poor deterrent against serious crime. Uh, and one of the reasons is that people who are psychopathic, uh, one of the hallmarks of primary psychopathy is a relatively fearless disposition, failure to learn from punishment, whether mm -hmm. your own punishment or other people's punishment. And people who, I mean, we often think of psychopathy as being equivalent to being a serious serial killer, but in fact that's the unusual psychopathic person as well. Most people who are psychopathic just commit just endless rounds of various antisocial behaviors for which they get punished, imprisoned, and then let out again only to reoffend. And so the there's no punishment that will serve as an effective deterrent if you don't have a, a fearless uh, res or a, a fear um, response to mm -hmm. punishment. So it's not an effective deterrent. It's mainly retributive, and uh, I think many people argue justifiably that that makes it barbaric because right. many of the most evil acts are committed out of a sense of vengeance. Right, right. So it's for society, not necessarily for to. 
It's only it's for a society that doesn't view human life as inherently sort of worthy, no matter right. no matter which life we're talking about. Right. Well, uh, the e evil in its original roots, when you when you think about its spiritual roots, um, you know, is, is the idea is that it's a kind of an imbalance or a, a kind of an undoing of what it is that would be considered good, and so mm. there is this kind of natural sense that the way you undo the evil is to sort of, you know kill something or make something be punished or so forth to then restore balance. So mm -hmm. there's this sort of notion of we've got to do something or there's an injustice in the, in the, uh, in the balance of right. things. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's a, a natural inclination to feel that way. But mm -hmm. That sounds like the old theory of catharsis, right? The, the best way to, you know, get, to get your anger out is we'll get rid of the anger, which of course we know now is not correct. Mm -hmm. um, I would, my sense is that violence tends to get more violence. Right. So I'm going to come back to something that Michael said um, about laws and, you know, having somebody um, um, hung, drawn, and courted and then sent out to show people what happens to you if you break laws. Um, this uh, viewer says, Plato argues that people need laws because they will always default to evil. Um, so, and, and what, so what I want to ask is, um, are there gradations of evil? And are we... Um, as human beings, do we tend towards evil? Do we, do we tend towards a state of chaos, essentially? Um, is that the, the entropy within us? Um, so Gary, maybe we'll, I'll start with you. Well, certainly at the heart of the work that Michael and I do is the notion that there is a, a system of gradation that one can use when you understand, again, that what we're talking about are, are acts that are premeditated and extreme and bewildering and horrendous. Um, and so th there are several factors that figure into that. But in our work, uh, really Michael's work, which I've, I've been now sort of building upon with him, um, is the notion that we have to understand the context, for example, in which a so-called evil act occurs. So for example, is an individual acting in self-defense, which might constitute a kind of zero point in a scale where an individual is acting out of self-preservation in, in a way that would be considered non-evil and justifiable. And then, uh, you know, next we would start to see things like people that are acting out of extreme situational duress, uh, uh, abuse, uh, acting under out of loyalty or fear uh, because of, of an individual that they have certain either romantic feelings for or fear of. And then we start to move up into individuals where personality starts to figure into it, people that have a predisposition to be hot-headed, people that have a, a predisposition to be narcissistic, uh, and so forth. And then we begin to move through uh, personality organizations like psychopathy, which we should probably talk a little bit about in terms of the definition, um, but um, you know this, this kind of um, proclivity to be fearless and sensation-seeking and um, kind of uh, guiltless uh, to engage in acts that would be considered criminal or immoral uh, without compunction, uh, take advantage of other people, to be charming and glib, uh, superficial. And, um, and then we notice that, that we start to see um, acts of torture come in and sadism at the extreme end. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, if anyone who's, who's read the book or is familiar with the scale, well, a very common question is, well, how is it that things like psychosis, for example, figure into a story, an individual that is operating under delusion or hallucination can commit an act that people will still call evil. Why would it be ranked high in a scale like that? And the answer is that it's because it's about the reaction that people have looking at it. 
So that if someone is operating under psychosis and, like Michael said earlier, were to murder and dismember a child, you would have the same reaction in, in the public who are seeing the act. So we have to account for that because our definition is about how it's experienced emotionally. Um, but as far as culpability and so forth, this is another question. Um, mm -hmm. um, but, um, but certainly we would argue that, that some acts are more evil, according to our definition, than others. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Michael, yes. I mean, I'm thinking of the way certain religions uh, define uh, what is evil uh, and which are very, very different one from another. Uh, in Pakistan, on, in Islam Islamic law, blasphemy uh, is considered evil and punishable by death. So that Asiya Bibi, the woman who was from India, who mm -hmm. moved with her husband to Pakistan after the, the 47 partition, one day found herself in very, very hot over there. Uh, and there was a, a big, uh, like a barrel with a ladle in it for the water for people to drink mm -hmm. if they were thirsty. So she went to the ladle and she took a few, a few sips of water. Uh, and the Muslim women near that saw her committing blasphemy because, God forbid, a Christian woman should defile the ladle mm -hmm. by drinking from uh, that ladle. So she was given the death penalty. Mm -hmm. uh, she was in the prison for quite a while. The um, Pakistani man, another Muslim who was a good-natured person who tried to defend her, was killed by his own guard for daring to defend the, quotes blasphemous woman. It's, mm -hmm. it's only recently, within the past number of months, that she was finally given permission to leave and go, I think, to Canada uh, to be, be safe, so that <laughs> the ideas of what is evil uh, is often affected you know, by the national and religious background uh, of the individual where, the, where they came from. Right. Uh, right. So but, it, but it's an important point that, that at the heart of, of the work that Michael and I have been doing is that we are interested in acts that evoke the same reaction, the, the idea of evil, regardless of time or space. So, because, so that, that, mm -hmm. that we see that there are certain acts that for some reason, even in individuals that, for example, have no religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs one way or the other, are repulsed by those actions, uh, and um, those are of particular interest right. to us. Yes. And, and I should probably say, just for the, for the audience, is that we're talking about um, acts not during wartime, because that, that, yes, that's, that's, that's a, a very different yes, situation. Yes, excellent point. Yes. Great. So, Abby, maybe, maybe you could talk to the, the question about um, whether we all have this in us, and um, you know, <coughs> also the fact that you study children. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, do, uh, do we all have the propensity to do evil deeds? Yeah, I think the, it's a question that we are forced to confront every time we see in the news that somebody has uh, engaged in some behavior that is horrifying and awful and was also unpredicted. You know, uh, somebody who wasn't known to be extremely violent before goes and shoots up uh, dozens of innocent people. Um, and I think when acts like that are so unpredictable, it often leads us to draw the incorrect conclusion, I guess anybody is capable of an act of evil so serious, because if we can't predict who it could be, I guess it could be anybody. Um, and it is true that it is very hard to predict accurately who will engage in acts of significant violence like that, especially when you're dealing with young men in whom various psychological disorders may be emerging for the first time. Uh, that contribute to those actions. But it's absolutely not the case that everybody is capable of actions like that. Um, 
uh, it's very rare that the, uh, any given person would be able to engage in harmful behavior like that. The average person actually is quite capable of compassion, which may sometimes get overridden by other motivations, which can sometimes, for example, happen in, in cases of warfare. But I think uh, what's clear is that the fact that we have a label like psychopathy or psychopath to denote this small subset of people who are truly lacking in care and compassion for everybody else makes it a logical requirement that the average person is capable of care and compassion because otherwise we wouldn't have any need to set apart this group of people we call psychopathic. Right. right? It, just it, say human. <laughs> exactly, right. I mean, the, the, the reassuring thing about working with people who are psychopathic is it makes it very clear how very unlike them most people are. Right. And, and here's where the gradation question sort of overlaps with the idea of personality because for example um, you can have two individuals that are reacting to something like jealousy for mm -hmm. example uh, I'll cite very quickly two cases one is a man named Samuel Collins in Maine uh, who was uh, quite in love uh, with his his wife uh, passionately in love with her and made a surprise visit to a supermarket where she was working and found her kissing a co-worker uh, became completely enraged when she returned home uh, you know, he, he stabbed her to death, tried to commit suicide. It was, there wasn't as really a lot of premeditation. He was acting out of an extreme uh, kind of emotional rage, had no real personality predisposition towards anything like that, was remorseful, as I understand it, not long thereafter, after surviving. And then we think of another case, uh, which, is a, which was uh, an infamous case called the parachute murder case. Uh, uh, and um, that involved a woman named Els Klotamans, I think her name was. And the idea was that she and another woman were romantically involved with the same man, and they sort of had an agreement that they were sort of taking turns meeting with him for liaisons and so forth. And uh, while one woman, Els Klotamans, was staying over the house and overheard uh, um, some uh, love talk or so forth, romantic activity between the other woman and, and him, she reportedly severed the the um, the um, release on a parachute that belonged to the other woman, uh, and then when they went skydiving together, she sort of stuck her head out and watched the other woman fumble two miles, I think it was, to the ground, and that was a, a week before the jump, so that we had a, a week of premeditation, cruelty, uh, this kind of real desire to see pain, but both motivated by jealousy. So that what I think is important to drive home is that one seemed to have a personality configuration that was quite different. So we have two people reacting to a very human thing, but one could go a little overboard. And this is the extra, the evil, yes. that I think Michael is talking right. about, right? Yeah. right. right. So I, I have an interesting question that came in um, about how, how would you differentiate between a serial offender who commits regular acts of evil and a terrorist who commits a single act of evil. Right. And I, I don't want to get too far into sort of the, the, the war um, exactly. sort of situation that I, I just mentioned, but right. the question is, is the terrorist a psychopath? You know, well, how, how would we define that terrorist? Um, maybe it comes back to what you were just saying about the, the environment that they're in and the, the particular way that they handle something. So, um, Michael, maybe, maybe you can talk to that. So, a serial offender and a terrorist, how, how do we look at them differently in terms of evil? Well, I think the serial offender, who especially who does things of exceptional cruelty, uh, is going to be defined as a person who has a penchant for doing evil acts, a acts that we consider horrifying and, and where we use the word evil mm -hmm. to denote the awfulness and, and sickening quality of what the person is doing. Terrorists 
uh, at least <laughs> some of the people who get dubbed with that label of terrorists are people in wartime uh, who, uh, and, or in times of, of great uh, international conflict and so on, who do uh, dreadful things to people on the other side of, of whatever uh, mm -hmm. group they represent, uh, which, uh, depending upon the degree of awfulness, if you will, <laughs> uh, may have the overtones or the, the, the look of evil, but uh, the person is really a rather different individual, maybe a, like a person in, a, in either an official army or a kind of uh, ragtag army mm -hmm. uh, doing those things against the enemy, but is not necessarily uh, a person like the ones that Dr. Brocado and I study, like David Parker Ray at the top mm -hmm. of our scale, you know, who is really into uh, exquisite torture of individuals in peacetime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so I, I wanted to just address very quickly, I know we're shifting gears a little bit, but I thought this was an interesting question, and I'm, I'll possibly rephrase it. Um, the, the, the viewer asks, um, is a scientist who's wired with psychopathic psychology best suited to be a scientist? P perhaps their, their detachment could be an asset. And this has actually come up in other webinars that we've done uh, on mental illness, is are there positive aspects to psychopathy where maybe somebody can manage the more evil part of it and that the, the, their, their um, tendency towards psychopathic behavior is actually helpful in some way, that maybe they can redirect that. So Abby, would you like to talk to that? Sure, I mean, um, what we believe is that when things like personality traits are configured on sort of a continuum throughout the population, that's almost always because there are advantages and disadvantages to being on the extreme end of the continuum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a good example is height, for example. Is it more advantageous to be tall or is it more advantageous to be short? Well, it sort of depends on the circumstances and how many resources are available and how many fights you're expecting to get in. And, you know, that's why most people converge towards the middle of the continuum. Mm -hmm. uh, so psychopathic personality traits in their extreme are not adaptive, especially because we are so fundamentally social a species mm. um, and psychopathic personality traits create pretty consistent problems uh, cooperating and getting along with other people. But low levels of psychopathy, um, rather <laughs> detachment from other people's suffering, um, relatively low levels of inhibition, um, a bold sort of dominant personality, again in the low levels that don't cause you to actually engage in truly violent or cruel behavior. Uh, sure, there are circumstances in which those could be adaptive personality traits and could uh, drive people towards leadership positions that um, in some cases benefit from a slight tendency towards Machiavellian mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. Michael, do you have any thoughts yes, on that? I think some swindlers, people who take advantage of, of the law in order to amass wealth mm -hmm. uh, by doing uh, d d deceitful things that really are, are uh, in, in contravention of, of the society's laws, uh, may have mild psychopathic traits which they then uh, use to their advantage but do not do things uh, uh, such as cutting up <laughs> bodies uh, and doing the, the, the things that Dr. Bricado and I mm -hmm. uh, put on the higher uh, levels of our scale. It's mm -hmm. also, I think, the uh, person who has psychopathic traits uh, is because of the lack of compassion and lack of fellow feeling, you know, is, is not the one who's going to march up uh, up the hill in, during battle and throw a grenade into the, uh, the, the Nazis' uh, machine gun area mm -hmm. and, and at the loss of his own life in order to save right. his comrades. No, mm -hmm. the psychopath will not do that. Mm -hmm. So that bravado 
uh, and seeming unusual uh, behavior is usually done by a very strong, competent, uh, and often perhaps even um, well, compa religious person, you know, who has such great feeling, you know, for the country and the group that he belongs to, that he's willing to give his life in order to save his comrades. You will not see that in somebody okay. with psychopathic traits. Yeah. Right. Interesting. And, um, and I, I think it's important, you know, to to sort of define that there are some people who talk about primary psychopathy versus secondary psychopathy. So that mm -hmm. primary psychopathy would refer to hereditary sort of psychopathic traits, the inborn sort of genetic stuff. And then secondary psychopathy is where an individual has been so uh, badly treated, so mm -hmm. adversely, uh, you know, treated during the, that they can look an awful lot like a person with inborn psychopathic traits. And there is some question of whether there are individuals that have primary psychopathy but who have a good upbringing and the best is brought out of them. And these are individuals that might have traits like being sensation-seeking, kind of, uh, you know, impulsive, kind of bored, fearless, so forth. And imagine an individual like that with a pro-social attitude. This might be the person who'd be willing to do things like, you know, run into fires or, you know, sort of rescue people or go into a mission and so forth. And uh, so, you know, one wonders if you need both ingredients uh, yeah. to become the, the so-called bad psychopath might be an individual that is bent in the direction of being antisocial yeah. by the secondary factor. I don't know factor. what's worth thinking yeah. about. In my study of serial killers, of mm -hmm. which uh, I have those who have a whole book written about them, I have 168 of those, and then many hundreds just known from magazine articles and newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. But among the ones where there's a lot of information, including about their early life, uh, I'm able to define a very small number, a little bit more than half a dozen, to whom nothing bad happened, Ted Bundy being one of them. Ted Bundy had a violent grandfather who may also by incest have been his actual father. Mm -hmm. uh, and the mother uh, got scared and, and uh, she and Ted moved uh, all the way from the east to the west into Seattle. And she married Bundy, who was a nice person, a working class person who never laid a hand on, on Ted. He, in other words, he did not suffer neglect. He didn't suffer undue, uh, untoward you know, punishment. Um, he <coughs> really uh, he didn't fall on his head and, and have frontal lobe damage uh, like Phil Garrido, you know, the one that uh, captured J.C. Dugard for 18 years. So that he was somebody, therefore, where the genetic component was primary and very mm -hmm. strong. And, and there's a small number of serial killers, you know, to whom nothing bad happened and therefore don't have the secondary uh, psychopathic uh, qualities. Whereas Others like Mike DeBartelaven, who was uh, attacked viciously by both mother and father, had a terrible childhood. And so that his uh, disdain and, and hatred you know, for the human race mm -hmm. was not just uh, something he uh, had because of bad genes, but because of terrible bad upbringing, right. uh, where there was uh, an overlap of primary and secondary psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Right, and it's important to emphasize there that it's almost never one of the other, you know. The, right. there's, there's no extra-creating environment in genetics, and it is common for, I think, in the general public, like, to be genetic disorders and environmental disorders, but right. almost all egregious sorts of behavior are really complex, too, of both. Right. So do we, um, to come to a question, another question from a viewer, because um, it was, uh, they were talking specifically to this topic, do we understand the neurological mechanism um, by which somebody is pushed towards psychopathic behavior, um, dependent on both their genes and their environment. Abby, do you? 
you have any insight on that? Sure. Yeah, we're developing the technologies to start understanding differences in the brains of people with all sorts of different psychological disorders early in life. Um, one of the differences in the brains of children who are psychopathic that's been pretty consistently identified is changes to a structure called the amygdala, mm -hmm. um, which is a structure that's very important for various kinds of social processes, for emotional learning, for fear, uh, and for some uh, aspects of empathy. And children who are psychopathic have amygdalas that are too small uh, and don't tend to be reactive to the sorts of things that they should be reactive to, including the sight of other people in distress or uh, cues that there is some sort of punishment that is afoot. And the early signs are that uh, problems in the development of the amygdala, as well as maybe some other nearby structures in the first decade or so of life, may be responsible for the emergent callous and caring personality we see in psychopathic children. Mm -hmm. Right. And are, are any of the things, the, the um, different physiologies that you see, can they in any way be predictive or is that a really dangerous road to go down? Predictive of adult oh, uh, yes. qualities? Uh, we're not that good yet at predicting exactly what an individual child's outcome will be. We can say that if you take a group of children who have strong psychopathic traits when they're young, mm -hmm. um, somewhere between a third and two thirds will still have measurable levels of psychopathic traits as adults. Why some of them desist and go on to develop and be relatively flourishing, we don't really know. Why some of them continue to get worse is also a bit of a mystery. Probably it's a mix of things that happen when they're out adolescence, experiences mm -hmm. they have, as well as some of the mysteries of adolescent brain development that we're still learning about. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, apropos uh, the things that can happen to a young person, <coughs> Phil Guido, the one that uh, abducted uh, J.C. Dugard uh, for all those years and had two daughters by her, etc., when he was 14, he uh, borrowed without permission his older brother's motorcycle, and rode it a little bit, crashed because he didn't know how to operate it very well, and suffered severe uh, damage in the frontal lobes with hematomata that had to be, the blood had to be drained, you know, from the, from the skull and brain and so on. Very soon afterwards, he began to develop intense rape fantasies. And he also began to abuse every drug on the market, LSD, mm -hmm. cocaine, mangel dust, marijuana, mm -hmm. and became a very bad person. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he raped someone in Nevada, was sent for, away for 50 years, but with the crazy uh, judge system that we have in our country. It was for good behavior of who's to rape in the prison. Mm -hmm. He was let go after a very short time. Mm -hmm. He then moves to California and rapes J.C. Uh, Dugard, keeps her in the backyard for all those years. Mm -hmm. But the problem there was the damage to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that part of the front part of the brain that acts as a breaking system right. so that when you have a bad idea, like I, I want to kill that girl, or I want to rape that girl, but then the, uh, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal says, eh, that's a bad idea, man. You get in trouble for that's bad. You right. shouldn't do that. Right. But when that's missing, anything can happen, and, right. and, and often does. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the, the story of Phineas Gage, um, yes. you know, who lost the, the part of his prefrontal cortex from that yes. uh, railroad accident. Yes. And something similar happened. That, you know, he was apparently the kindest person, and after yes. he lost that, he became mean and aggressive. Yes. But, it, but I think it's also important to talk about that one you know, we're going through the histories of people who commit, let's say, serial murder. Um, there is a conspicuous amount of uh, environmental, adverse environmental experiences these people have, uh, childhood abuse, alcoholic parents, uh, abandonment, 
so forth. And um, what we start to see are very clear patterns of fantasy that are used in childhood, sort of the idea of wanting to dominate people, particularly women and a lot of these, these, these male offenders that we see. Um, that, that usually during adolescence and early adulthood ultimately are acted out, but there's this sort of long period of brooding on these hurts and feeling mm -hmm. inadequate and angry, uh, holding a, a very serious grudge, that then uh, there's the overlap of this disinhibited, you know, sort of mm. this, this personality, and it's mm -hmm. a sort of perfect storm, a recipe mm -hmm. for disaster. Right. Uh, but, and then, of course, drugs and alcohol also can grease the wheels. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we see a lot of a lot of serial killers that were engaging in, uh, for example, Ted Bundy, I believe, was using alcohol yeah. and other kind, mm -hmm. which can further disinhibit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we see a lot of stuff in adolescence, for example. Mm -hmm. but, uh, so yeah. you you touched on something that I I did want to get to, which is yeah. that the vast majority of serial killers um, and people who, who commit these heinous crimes are men. So. Yes. Can you talk a little bit, Michael, about the physiology around that testosterone levels and also brain development in adolescence? I can make it short. <laughs> if you could. <laughs> I know. Testosterone. That's it? Yeah. The yeah. men, uh, the Annette Shermer from, I can't remember whether she's from Hong Kong, I think from Taiwan, mm -hmm. writes very brilliantly about the differences between men and women vis-a-vis -vis their emotionality and so on. Mm -hmm. Men, after all, in the state of nature, are the defenders of the little bitty tribes that we all lived in uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, we st the men stand on the periphery of the tribe while the women are in the middle taking care of their babies and cooking for everyone, including the men. And the men, therefore, if there's a tribe over here that's trying to invade your tribe, the men with their bows and arrows are going to defend the, their own tribe uh, because they're more aggressive. And they also even have uh, a better uh, grasp uh, of what is the hypotenuse of the triangle? You know, if you shoot the arrow and mm. the person is running this way, when is it going to hit you know, right. the victim? So men are more aggressive. Uh, women tend to be more compassionate and emotional uh, so that the uh, violent acts are far more apt to occur in a man. Among mass murderers, for example, of which I have in my Excel file uh, the 368 uh, mass murderers, uh, not the, obviously the total picture of mass murder, but the ones ab about whom a great deal is known. 97% are males and only 3% are, are women. So that with men's aggressivity that wins wars, uh, rapes women, kills people, uh, saves the nation and, and soldiery and whatever. Uh, but that's, that's a guy thing. You know? mm -hmm. And, and we see when we examine female versus male, for example, serial killers, there seem to be very different motivations. Uh, for example, we do see there are psychopathic uh, serial killing females, but they seem to hone in on their own families or people they know as opposed to strangers. We, we see more hunting and prowling, for example, for strangers and males. Uh, they tend to be more motivated by practical concerns if the females like uh, you know, financial concerns or, or something like that, as opposed to um, acting out long-standing rage, mm -hmm. you know, towards uh, an entire group of people uh, who, you know, who have never heard a, a hair on your head kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Um, so it's sort of interesting to think about, the other question is how much of this is sort of socially constructed and are males uh, sort of encouraged to be more aggressive and so forth, or, you know, or is it purely biological, or is it a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B? Mm -hmm. But I, but I certainly do agree that testosterone is playing a, a mm -hmm. probably quite a significant role. 
Uh. Yeah, there's no question that there are cultural factors that can affect the rates of violence and aggression in the society. That's really, really clear. But um, I think it's easy to ignore the fact that the differences in violent aggression between men and women are not 100% a factor of culture. And we know this because if we look at other species, other mammalian right. species, including chimpanzees, mm -hmm. male chimpanzees are responsible for almost an exactly equivalent proportion of violent aggression mm -hmm. as male humans are. If you look across cultures, uh, male humans commit about 90% of all violent aggression mm -hmm. in every continent on yeah. the planet. And so that clearly cannot be explained through cultural factors right. alone. Right. And I believe that chimpanzees also commit cannibalism. Yeah. My, my understanding. I even gave you an example of mm -hmm. when I was in Argentina uh, and uh, there was a couple of cats in the lawn where I was having lunch after giving a lecture mm -hmm. and I'm very fond of cats so I, I bought some meat in a, in a little uh, wagon standing nearby and threw the meat to uh, one of the cats but immediately a whole bunch of other cats came smelling the, the meat and the big tomcat scratched and, and, and pushed away and, and mm. beat up the other cat and grabbed it all for himself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's not too far from certain uh, people in our species. Right. Yes. Yeah, and especially when there's limited resources. Yes. I think that, that certainly is an environmental cue that brings out yeah. a lot of aggression. Well, I think it's also important to emphasize what an incredibly docile species humans are. I mean, if you think about cats, they're such a great comparison <laughs> example. But if you think of, honestly, any other species than humans, imagine a situation like an airplane. Try putting 250 of them that are strangers in an uncomfortable metal box right. with no particular authority figure and shaking them around in the sky <laughs> for six hours, there'd be bloodshed among right. any other species on the planet with a possible exception of bonobos. Right. And I think it's a real testament <laughs> to the fact that humans are actually, as a rule, a, quite a docile species. In fact, some people mm, call us uh, self-domesticated, that we have evolved to actually get along and cooperate unusually well as a species, uh, which enables us to do things like fly in airplanes and make cities and work right. in institutions that other or species never... Television. And, and yeah. programs like right. this. Exactly. And so that makes right. the uh, that makes us even more fascinated, I think, by the really unusual outliers among us who do right. engage mm. in this incredibly antisocial behavior consistently because right. it's such an anomaly. Right. right. In fact in fact there are some people that define good and evil in that way. They say good is having a visceral human desire to do something and inhibiting it for the greater hmm. good of another for the benefit of another person. Uh, or doing something you know that, that is against every fiber of your natural being, whereas evil would be indulging it. Right. So it's, it's sort of interesting. interesting when you think about it that way. Yeah. So I'd like to move on uh, to a little bit, just to shift the conversation towards intervention. And mm -hmm. you know, so all of you study evil in some in some form, um, but I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about what what can we do with this information? Is there anything that we can do? Once we understand evil, we, we have a scale, we understand where people are. Um, what's the next step? Is, is there anything that we can do? Um, Gary, why don't we start with you? Well, uh, I, I think one of the valuable things about thinking in gradations and in terms of personality and in terms of how much premeditation goes in and how sadistic or mm -hmm. psychopathic somebody is, is that it gives us a lot of insight into what the dynamics are that drive certain crimes. So for example, if we were to lump everybody together, for example, who commits mass murder, mm -hmm. we would wind up with these sort of somewhat superficial kind of categories of people, mentally ill, not mentally ill, you know, bad. So, and the, the truth is it's much more dynamic than that. And it's interesting to sort of really take an individual and look at what drove them. And I think that's where we're going to discover the roots of what really drives a lot of, of, of severe, severe aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael? Mm -hmm. Michael? Well, <clears throat> there, 
uh, speaking about mass murder, for example, uh, there are, are, are many people, uh, men, you know, who lose a job, uh, who uh, have their fiancé walk out on them or their wife, you know, divorce them because often of <laughs> very un uncomfortable behavior directed toward uh, the, their women folk, uh, who uh, then will get an AK-47 and go out and commit mass murder, uh, as we saw, well, any, any week or any year that we're talking about, we have seen many different mass murders, including the ones in Dayton and El Paso. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but those people, uh, who the men who commit uh, the mass murder, uh, <clears throat> some are psychopaths, some are, many are not, many are just disgruntled people with um, rather poor social skills and poor even uh, occupational skills who are vulnerable. What can we do about them? Uh, well, <laughs> the, it's very difficult to treat en masse all the people, all the men, you know, that fall into that category. Uh, one could make it much more difficult to get a hold of the weaponry uh, mm. th that uh, allow for the mass murder, uh, as it's been doing now in, in New Zealand uh, after the mm -hmm. mosque murders and they took away the AK-47s. It happened after uh, Hamilton killed all the, uh, in, in Scotland, uh, when the uh, 16 pupils and the teacher were killed you know, by a mass murderer. Uh, they it became no longer lawful you know, to have that kind of weaponry. So our country is a long ways from mm -hmm. <laughs> developing that, that kind of um, restriction, but it's something to think about at least, because it's much more easy to uh, get rid of the weaponry that allows those things to happen than it is to do psychotherapy uh, on, on uh, particularly on people with psychopathic tendencies who are not very amenable to therapy anyway, right. but even on the, the others, it's, it's very difficult to do that in such a way as to reduce the tendency to evil. And, and to identify them in order to yes. do the therapy. Yeah. yeah, we have no tools to effectively uh, predict who's likely to engage in those kinds of mass shootings at this point, and we don't have any effective treatments, especially for adults, uh, that uh, um, consistently work even if we did. So of mm. course getting rid of the mm -hmm. weapons by which people can commit these crimes is the essential thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, that said, we could be doing a lot better in um, doing research on how to identify and treat people who are at risk of serious violence. Uh, unfortunately, that particular topic has gotten uh, painfully few mental health resources directed toward mm -hmm. it compared to other mental illnesses. And if we, I think, more consistently viewed um, disorders like conduct disorder, uh, like psychopathy as illnesses that have knowable um, causes and that we could uh, get better at identifying and treating if we put some concerted effort into it, I think we would have gone further and I hope that that will change in the future. Mm -hmm. So the, a, a few questions came in on this and it's something that I, I've also been thinking about and that is, is um, if we find that mental illness plays a role, it plays a significant role, we can identify that mental illness, can that be used as an excuse for the behavior, uh, especially I'm, I'm thinking in a criminal setting, so you know somebody is brought up on trial and they say, well, I couldn't help myself, I have this psychopathy or I have this particular mental illness. Um, so Michael, maybe, maybe you can talk to us since you, you have a lot of experience <coughs> in this area. I don't, yes, I don't, <laughs> uh, I don't think there's the, the, those excuses would be valid. Um, as a matter of fact, quite the opposite. If, for example, if let's say an adolescent who shows uh, psychopathic tendencies and, and would score pretty high on the hair psychopathy checklist scale where there's a score around 30 or uh, up to a possible the maximum of 40. 
uh, and has done a, a bad deed, which even smacks of what we are here defining as evil. Uh, and let's say an, an adult, a, a man who's even in, in his 20s or, or, or 30s, does that sort of thing, then it seems to me the court ought to be made aware that this person, by virtue of having a s strong psychopathic tendencies or psychopathic personality, should be given a sentence that is much longer in prison than uh, some other person that might do a similar crime but that does not have uh, any hint of, of psychopathic uh, personality overtones because the likelihood that the person is going to uh, reoffend when he is let go mm. is very, very high. So that the, the but I think uh, the, the defense attorneys and judges are loath to uh, take that into consideration and to say, well, you know, because, uh, you know, people have a right to defense as, as well. Uh, there's, we're really not comfortable with the idea of doing what I think is the right thing, which is to say, if a person clearly is psychopathic and has done a really wicked crime, rape, murder, mm -hmm. uh, and so on, that the idea of uh, releasing him at the, what the law says, well, for such such crime we do seven years, and no. Uh, for uh, taking into consideration the, the abnormal psychopathic personality ought to extend mm. uh, the length of incarceration to protect the public mm. from the man that's going to do uh, the same thing again the minute he gets out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Abby? that's, I, I would say um, that that, ma that makes sense to me, in mainly in the sense that a psychopathy assessment is not any sort of a magic uh, instrument. Mm -hmm. All it tells us is things that already are taken into consideration when it comes to uh, sentencing, which include lack of remorse, that's the sort of hallmark of people who are psychopathic as compared to other antisocial yep. populations, mm -hmm. is they don't exhibit remorse for the bad things that they do. That already is taken into consideration during sentencing. Low impulse control is a, is a huge component of psychopathy because there's sort of a, the two kinds of breaks you can have on antisocial behavior. Mm -hmm. One is care and compassion and remorse, which inhibit you from wanting to hurt other people because you realize it's wrong and it makes you unhappy. But the other one, even if you don't have that, is just the ability to uh, inhibit impulses. And uh, the most uh, dangerous psychopathic individuals have neither of those. Hmm. Um, and people who lack impulse control tend to engage in lots of consistent antisocial behaviors over their lifespan. And a history of persistent offending also is taken into account when it comes to sentencing. Mm -hmm. And so a psychopathy assessment is really telling us the most important things we already know we need to consider when it comes to sentencing. But I think at the end of the day, we have to bear in mind that what the law is concerned with is did you know right from wrong, uh, you know, so as opposed to what was driving it and so forth. There, that the focus is more on on that. And um, you know, for example, when we talk about serial murder, um, there was an exhaustive study of serial killers done. I think it was down in uh, Rayford uh, and uh, Gulf Coast University called the Serial Killer Database. We looked at over 4,000 offenders. Incredible database. And um, what they found was only 0.6% of people who meet criteria for serial killing um, had serious psychotic illness, for example. Mm -hmm. And even in those cases, what it looks like is that these are people who had additional antisocial personality features that sort of were exaggerated or disinhibited by this overlapping illness so that you have the typical course for example, in somebody like Albert Fish or Richard Chase, I mean, these were serial killers who mm -hmm. engaged in very disorganized or disturbing behavior, and yet there isn't the absence of that long-standing personality organization. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, you know, it, it depends on do you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So we're 
almost out of time. We just have a, a minute or two left, and I, I, I would really like to end on a positive note. Um, <laughs> so um, there was a question that came in that says, uh, Dr. Baron Cohen, I, I believe Simon Baron Cohen at yes, the University Simon of Baron Cambridge. Cohen. Cambridge. Um, he uh, has uh, apparently said, um, my main goal is to understand human cruelty, replacing the unscientific term evil with the scientific term empathy. Do you agree? So maybe I can just go around and, and say, I know you, you um, Abby, are studying compassion, or that, that's mm -hmm. one way that you're looking at your work. So maybe we'll start with you and just a, a quick answer. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, care and compassion is part of our makeup as human beings. We don't pay much attention to it, I think, in fact, because it is so normal. Uh, the desire to cooperate, the desire to care for others is, is a normal human impulse, and it's important to try to prevent those acts of evil that do happen, but it's also important to remember that that's not the human norm at all. Mm -hmm. Michael? Well, I, I don't think uh, uh, that Simon Baron Cohen is correct in wanting to ditch you know, the term evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't mean that uh, his emphasis on empathy is incorrect. Uh, empathy is an extraordinarily important human quality that, that most, but unfortunately not all of us, uh, enjoy. Mm -hmm. But uh, evil is out there th in the way that we've all been defining it. You know. right. Gary? No, I, I would echo I would echo what Michael said there, and I I think you know there is a quality where we have to sort of, on the one hand, be compassionate and empathic, and 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 understand where people are coming from, but at the same time we do have to have concern for the wider population and understand that there's certain people that do present a danger. Um, it may not be necessary to keep the word evil on the books, you know, but it's certainly a term that we grope for when we're trying to understand these acts that are just so exceed our human understanding um, that, that we're left with that emotion and that's where Michael and I find ourselves fascinated mm -hmm. in those kind of actions. Great. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time for this webinar, so uh, a heartfelt thank you to all of our panelists uh, for the fascinating discussion. Uh, Abby Marsh, uh, Michael Stone and Gary Bricado. If you'd like to send us your thoughts on today's webinar, please email webinar at AAAS.org. Again, thank you very much to our panel and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye.